Okay, hello everybody um, and welcome to this session. Uh, my name is Alison Hills from Oxford and I'm delighted to introduce our two speakers. Uh, first of all, Halvard Lillehammer, who's very well known here. They've been in Cambridge for many years uh, and now Birkbeck, uh, known for his many papers on metaethics and his book Companions in Guild. And then Roger Crisp, my colleague from Oxford, um, for, known for work in many areas of moral philosophy, from virtue ethics uh, to reasons in the good, and more recently some work on Sidgwick. And they're going to be talking about moral testimony. So, Halvar, over to you. Thank you. I will stand. Um, feel more comfortable that way. I will use this to put my notes. So first of all, thank you for the invitation to speak at this symposium. Um, very grateful for that. Uh, very privileged to speak here at Cambridge again. Um, nice to see so many people that I know. And uh, thanks to Roger for taking such care to write a careful response to the paper that I submitted last year. Thank you, Roger. Um, the topic of my talk and my paper, which some of you will have read and others will not, is the topic of moral testimony or the practice or the activity of taking someone's moral judgment on trust and some other things. I don't propose to go into the definitional issues here. The question that I addressed in the paper was whether reliance on moral testimony in this sense is a potentially unproblematic or even potentially admirable way of acquiring moral commitments or beliefs, as they're sometimes called, or whether it's somehow illegitimate, inadmissible, or impermissible, or unacceptable, incorrect, or less than fully admirable. Those phrases are phrases from some recent papers on this topic uh, that have defended a position that's come to be known as moral testimony pessimism. That's the view that says that there is something impermissible, less than fully admirable, and so on, about acquiring moral beliefs in this way. So instead of reading out my paper or taking you through all the tedious details, I thought I'd go through some of the main points in it. Uh, so when I've been thinking about this topic, I found it useful to think about it in terms of a certain number of scenarios, settings, or cases. There are a number of those. I'm going to mention five today. And then I'm going to raise four questions about the topic of moral testimony in light of those cases, which uh, will indicate why... I took the views I did in the paper that I did. Then I will say something briefly about a kind of conciliatory section of the paper uh, where I um, go some way towards trying to do justice to the views of moral pes testimony pessimists without acquiring that view. And then, because I can never resist it, I'm going to finish with an anecdote. So here are some of the scenarios that I've used to think about this topic. There are five. The first scenario, which is picked up by Roger in his paper, is the scenario that I call acculturation, or um, becoming familiar with, say, a new set of moral, ethical, practical practices uh, where you are an outsider in some way. So in Roger's paper, he talks about, uh, perhaps there are a bunch of academics in a place like this, uh, welcoming a visitor from another continent. I think in Roger's example, it's a Japanese person. And there are some issues to do with politeness and receiving gifts and so on, how to behave with this person. So, so Roger uses that example to question how we should define the term moral in the notion of moral testimony. Moral as opposed to some maybe ethically more broadly understood or some other practical issues. I'm not going to go into that here, or I'm happy to talk about that later. 
Now, I think this is an interesting kind of scenario because, as Roger rightly, I think, suggests, a process of acculturation, learning to live in a certain kind of new environment, can be a, a, a scenario in which it can be perfectly rational to accept someone's ethical judgment on trust if they're trying to help you and they know the environment better than you do. But as often in these cases, the devil is in the detail. And I think Roger's example is very interesting because, as he describes the case, we are the people who are at home and we're helping to understand this Japanese visitor. So we're sort of in generally at home in this scenario, whereas the Japanese visitor is not. Now, imagine you turn the case around and suppose that you're the equivalent of the Japanese visitor. Now it looks like there could be many more issues on which you might need someone's judgment on trust. Oh, I can't stop. First anecdote, much too early. Uh, so I remember when I came to this university in 1994, um, I came to a, a college and I received instructions to go and see my senior tutor. And it said, for decorum about seeing a senior tutor, look at the following documents. I looked at the following document and it said, gowns are worn in all meetings with college officers. This rule is not enforced. What does that mean? <laughs> Now, of course, this is a piece of etiquette, right? But I think you'd be very naive to think that all that's at stake in interpreting, enforcing, and acting on that rule, you're only talking about matters of etiquette, that nothing, there's nothing morally at stake. So I think it depends on which way you look at this case. But I think that kind of scenario is a case which suggests that if you have someone who can help you, uh, even if you don't understand at the time why it is that something is the right thing to do, it might be rational for you, if you're lucky, to rely on their judgment. There's a third kind of case, which I don't really want to go into because it puzzles me too much, of a similar kind. And that's a kind that arises where you're not a stranger in an environment. You're in your own environment, but you've somehow become detached or alienated from it. You no longer feel at home in it. I think that's another case in which it might be rational for someone and admirable for someone to rely on moral testimony. And notice, it doesn't have to be the case that you are somehow disadvantaged with respect to the path of progress. You might find yourself in that situation because what's happened is something absolutely disastrous. So there are many kinds of versions of that case. But that's one kind of case I used to think about uh, moral testimony, and I think that there are s there's a wide range of cases there where it can be rational and admirable to rely on it, if you're lucky enough to be able to do so. The second kind of case is more straightforward. It's a case of vulnerability. So in the paper, I use the example of Ulysses and the sirens. Ulysses knows that once he gets close to the area of the irresistible sirens, he won't be able to resist them, so he tells his sailors the time to the mast for the duration of the period when they are close to the sirens. We don't have to think about Ulysses. We can think about various kinds of vulnerabilities that we might be aware of ourselves where we don't trust our own judgment in a certain kind of case. Because perhaps we know that we're prone to a certain kind of implicit bias, self-deception, self-aggrandizement, delusion, and other sorts of attitudes that are very common. I think this is a kind of interesting case because it shows that there are situations in which it can be perfectly rational and admirable to rely on someone's moral testimony, which don't necessarily mean that you are infantilized as such as an agent in doing so. So those who think that there is a problem about taking moral testimony compatible with maintaining an autonomous sense of agency uh, should reflect on the, on the fact that Ulysses, for example, is very much in charge of his ship both before and after he's close to the sirens, at least as far as I remember. So that's the second kind of case I used to think about it. The third kind of case I used to think about it 
um, involves our embeddedness in certain kinds of institutions. So many of us are involved in certain kinds of institutions and social practices where for various reasons we construct walls, say walls of information, between some people and others in order to make those institutions function effectively and protect certain agents that are involved in them. So one example of that, which I think I mentioned in the paper, is the example of confidentiality. So you might, for example, think that there are certain kinds of information about some people that others will use to make moral judgments about them, which you are rightly excluded from in virtue of your position in that practice or institution. And you might admire that institution. You might think that the institution is designed as well as it possibly could be, but accept that and accept people's moral testimony in those circumstances, even though you think that, um, in some sense, you might be able yourself, if you had that information, to make your own mind. So that's the third kind of case. Now, so far, the cases I've talked about, in some sense, all involve a certain kind of epistemic asymmetry. That is to say, you as a receiver of moral testimony, as somebody who is in some sense disadvantaged with respect to, let's call it, the evidence for the moral beliefs or convictions you form. I think it's worthwhile thinking about whether there are cases where that's not necessarily true, or at least where the evidence could easily be available to you. So you're not vulnerable in this sense. So I think it's worth thinking about what I call division of labor cases, where you might imagine yourself making a series of judgments over a period of time, and you think you're very good at making those judgments over time. There might, for example, be judgments about the trustworthiness of other people with a certain kind of moral content. You might, you might be very arrogant and think that you're much better than everybody else at making those judgments. It's just that the people around you are just good enough to be relied on in the circumstances. So when they tell you that so-and-so is not trustworthy, so you should not lend them your car, you take their word for it. Not because you couldn't work it out for yourself, but simply because life is too short. I also think a number of institutional cases are cases of that kind. And they show that it's not necessarily an aspect of personal vulnerability and part of an agent that may lead someone to take moral testimony. It can simply be a matter of division of a certain kind of labor. So those are the four, I think, more straightforward cases. And then there's the case that always creates trouble. And that's the case which I call the friendship case. So here, opinions strongly divide, I think, among philosophers. At least that's my experience when I've discussed this, giving this paper before. This is the situation where somebody thinks that it's, it can be a desirable thing to be in a relationship with someone, a relationship of mutual dependency, which partly involves you taking their moral judgments on trust in some cases, say, for example, about who to trust. So this is, in one sense, a division of labor, but it's a special kind of division of labor because it involves a certain kind of openness to another. You might, if you like, if you want to talk about it in those terms, call it a kind of shared moral cognitions because you're thinking of yourself as part of a we rather than a, as part of an I and you or I and the other. So some people think uh, that this kind of friendship, this kind of relationship with another person can be something that one should cultivate, something very admirable. And if that is true, if that is something very admirable, and I'm not arguing today that it is, but if you think that, then you will think that there is a certain kind of case which shows that the reliance on the moral testimony on another person can be an admirable and rational thing to engage in without that necessarily revealing a certain kind of disadvantage or impermissible behavior on your part. But as I say, this case is controversial. I have presented this material to, to philosophers in the past, and people have sometimes responded that that's an inappropriate form of friendship. I prefer to keep an open mind. So those are my five cases. Now four questions. First question. Considering these cases and what I've said about them, ask yourself, 
Is it always or necessarily irresponsible to take someone's judgment on trust in the way implied by moral testimony? There I think the answer is straightforwardly no, it's not always irresponsible to do so. So arguments that suggest that you can't be responsible and relying to rely on moral testimony are not compelling in my view. Second question, does relying on moral testimony somehow impugn your moral worth as an agent? Here I think the answer is also one that I would like to give, which is no. It may be that relying on moral testimony is not the best or the most excellent or the most ideally virtuous thing to do. Let's assume that for the sake of argument. But it could still be a good thing to do. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to do or impermissible thing to do. Third question. Does relying on moral testimony impugn your moral autonomy? Is it inconsistent with the value of autonomy, of freedom, being a self-governing agent? Here I think the case divides. Right? There's obviously a sense in which Ulysses or the kind of examples you can construct along the basis of Ulysses, is an autonomous agent in the sense that really matters. He's in charge of himself. He just doesn't trust himself when he's close to the sirens. But there is a sense of autonomy in which perhaps he's not autonomous. That's the sense that insists on, in order to be a free agent in the way that matters, you should be as independent as possible of others when you form your moral judgments. You should somehow detach yourself from all attachment, historical, contingent, institutional attachment, and ask always, in every case, what are the ground-level reasons that makes this or that thing an inappropriate thing to do? And then, unless you act on your own judgment in that case, you're somehow being impermissible. Now, clearly, some of the examples I've considered, especially the friendship case, but also the division of labor case, suggests that that kind of way of taking moral testimony is not compatible with the value of autonomy considered in that sense. That's one of the reasons why, not the only reason why, I think I'm suspicious about this notion of the value of autonomy. But my point for, that, for today is simply that there is a way of understanding autonomy in which relying on moral testimony is compatible with value of autonomy. Final question. Is relying on moral testimony compatible with virtue. Here I think, again, this, this, the case is complicated. Roger has some interesting things to say about that, that in his paper. I've got lots of things to say about that that are very inarticulate and confused. So I just thought I'd say two things about it here. The first is this. If you're convinced that there are certain kinds of human relationships, such as the friendship relationships that I sketched out, which are admirable, and perhaps as admirable as anything somebody might want to pursue, then even if being autonomous in the sense of forming your own moral judgments is also an ideal in that sense, it may not be the unique ideal. As a result of which, there might be a sense in which, in Roger's terminology, it's regrettable not to form one's judgments oneself in every individual case relative to a certain kind of ideal of virtue. But the question isn't just whether it's regrettable with respect to an ideal of virtue, but whether partly that kind of regrettability is compensated for by the realization of another kind of ideal, which I have suggested might exist in certain cases of friendship. So the question here is about uniqueness. The other thing which I want to say about the ideal of virtue is simply this. Words like impermissible, less than fully admirable, wrong, incorrect, 
can be interpreted in many different ways. You can do it with capital letters or you can do it in small letters. And there's a sense of doing it in small letters, which I think is perfectly innocuous. Even supposing that the kind of virtue described in terms of autonomous moral judgment formation, taking that notion of moral judgment formation, even if, that, if that's the unique notion of virtue one should aim at, there's a sense in which the non-realization of value may give you some notion of, you might need some notion of regrettability or less than fully admirable to make sense of it. But it's not obvious you get something strongly deontically negative, even if there is a norm there, provided that it's possible to form judgments in this non-autonomous way in ways that, as it were, are beyond a certain threshold of acceptability and responsibility, which I have suggested on the basis of my examples is possible. Now, taking these examples and these questions, the, the attitude we take towards moral testimony is partly going to be depending on how frequent are these examples how frequently are they realized in our social world? How frequently do we confront them? And to the extent that we do confront them, to what extent is it regrettable that we confront them? And my position is simply this, that there are, many, there are some of these cases where it's obviously clear that it is regrettable that someone confronts them, but it's not clear to me that it always is. So in the sense in which one might convince oneself to be a moral testimony pessimist, that would be a guarded sense. So that's my... Five examples and my four questions. So now this little aside about my concessionary move in the penultimate section of my paper. There what I, what, what I try to do is, is to talk about a slightly different issue, which is meant to do justice to some of the thoughts people who are attracted to moral testimony pessimism, some of the thoughts they've had, which attracts them to that view, which if interpreted in another kind of way, perhaps are more plausible. I'm not saying that they're obviously implausible in the moral testimony case, but... They're more plausible here. And that's an issue not to do with whether it is impermissible or wrong or less than fully admirable to form a judgment on the basis of trusting someone's judgment, but whether there's something puzzling or problematic about doing so in situations where two conditions are satisfied. You're putting yourself or being put under the power of another person for reasons which not only do you not necessarily understand them at the time in which it happens or when you are under their power, but you cannot understand them. They are unavailable to you. They're esoteric. They're kept from you. Now, that's an interesting question, which has a long history in our discipline, and it's particularly uh, interesting for those of us who are interested in conceptions of democratic legitimacy, ideas of government by the governed, in which it's natural to think that certain kinds of norms of transparency have to be in place in order for it to be justifiable for some people to have power over others in a certain kind way. So that was by way of being concessionary, not just negative in my paper. I wanted to sort of say something about how some of those thoughts were ones I could make sense of in a positive way. And then, my anecdote. So, one of my colleagues uh, in this institution, former colleagues, uh, once berated me for committing an act of supererogation. Now, this person, who I hold in immense esteem, said to me that it was wrong to act beyond the call of duty in this case because it was subversive of common morality. Now, at the time, I didn't quite understand it. And the way it was articulated to me was not quite transparent either. But it stung me. It stung me for two reasons. One, 
we may be used to being morally berated for doing something that is impermissible or wrong or below the call of duty, but being berated for doing something beyond the call of duty, why? Why would that be appropriate? I didn't understand it then, but I did take the person's advice on the grounds that this is a person who had much more experience of me in these kinds of matters and was probably, if I may put it so boldly, much more familiar with me than me uh, in swimming with sharks. And I've thought about it recently before coming up today. I mean, I think I was right to rely on this person's judgment. I still don't fully understand it. But uh, if I may use a, a phrase from one of the papers that I found most helpful in thinking about this issue, which I didn't quote in my paper, perhaps it's sort of helping me learning to be good. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to uh, Halbert. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have a confession. Uh, uh, <laughs> <this one. clears throat> um, thanks to Halbert for a very interesting paper. I've really enjoyed thinking about it. Thank you to the committee for the invitation and to the organisers and their assistants for uh, putting us up so, so well. Um, so, yes, I did enjoy uh, Halbert's paper and that's um, presentation. And I wanted to note first the welcome uh, breadth of his uh, approach to these issues, which lie at the intersection of questions about moral value and epistemic value, such that it's a mistake, really, to focus on, on one or, or the other uh, alone. And I also admire his readiness to step back from uh, the issue itself and con consider exactly what kind of questions we're, we're dealing with, conceptual, empirical epistemological, moral, political, prudential. I, myself, maybe this is a confession, uh, find myself inclined towards Peronian scepticism about most things, uh, in including um, philosophical things. Uh, and it's not just for that reason that I can see quite a lot of plausibility in the position that Halvard uh, is, is putting forward. But I also think there's a lot to be said for moral testimony pessimism. So I'm happy to serve as its advocate, uh, at least for now. One final general thing is I think the kind of upshot of Halbert's discussion is that it leaves many, it sort of uncovers many interesting questions about the intersection of these two kinds of uh, value and the relation of intellectual virtue to, to moral virtue uh, for further reflection. Okay, so the main focus of his discussion is the idea expressed by Alison, among others, Socrates, perhaps one, that <laughs> reliance on moral testimony is uh, unacceptable or at least less than fully admirable. Less admirable than it, than, it, than it might be. So that idea sounds moral, and Halbert's first discussion in his paper is, is, of, is of moral arguments against 
moral testimony. I, I called his overarching argument here the frenetic argument because the, the central thought is that reliance on testimony is inappropriate for a good moral judge, the Aristotelian uh, phronimos. And essentially it comes in two versions, according to Halvard. So the first one I called the extension argument. And here the thought is that if you fail to understand the grounds for some moral judgment in some particular case, you won't then be able to universalise in relevantly similar cases to the correct uh, conclusion. Now that argument, Halvard seems to accept, though he notes that, of course, it's a problem for many other forms of testimonial knowledge but it is still a, a problem. So I think he's actually giving some ground there to moral testimony pessimism. Now, the second form of argument I call the understanding argument, uh, and that appeals directly to the alleged non-instrumental or intrinsic value of moral understanding. Now, you could, and I think Aristotle does actually do something like this, you could bolt together the extension argument and the understanding argument uh, and claim that there is actually something especially valuable about extendable knowledge, but you don't have to do that. The, un the understanding argument kind of stands on its, on its own. Okay, so we've got, the, we've got the frenetic argument and it's been divided into the extension and the understanding versions. Now, the understanding version is subdivided further into three um, separate kinds of argument. Okay, so the first one is the impermissibility argument. So this argument says accepting moral testimony is always wrong. Now, as Halbert says, that argument must be uh, an exaggeration because we all accept that sometimes reliance on testimony, moral testimony, is okay. The question is when. Now, one thing to note is that this argument, as it were, the essence of this argument can be restated in terms of something like Rossian prima facie duties, or some prefer pro tanto duties or, or reasons. So the idea is that we have a reason, and it's not an overall reason or a decisive reason, in any case, not to rely on testimony. But sometimes that reason can be, can be outweighed by other reasons. There's also a question here about what counts as moral information, and that's where the case of the Japanese visitor uh, comes in. So <clears throat> in my example, uh, which does come from uh, experience, a Japanese uh, visitor presents me with a gift and I'm not sure what to do. So I consult you as an expert on Japanese etiquette about whether I should reciprocate. And you say, well, yes, you should. Uh, you should present her with a gift of roughly similar value and make sure you wrap it up extremely carefully. So I've relied on testimony, and it seems appropriate. But have you given me anything close to the moral grounds uh, for this judgment about what I should do? I already know about the importance of politeness. That's why I'm asking you. I just want you to tell me what politeness consists in, in this uh, particular case. Imagine a different case in which I'm actually a rather insensitive person, 
And I'm kind of wondering, well, it's quite nice to have this uh, gift. Can I just take it without even thanking the, the donor? That seems blameworthy. So there's a question about how we draw the, the boundary there. How much knowledge should the phronomos have? Well, I think as much as is required not to be blameworthy. And I can't be blamed for not knowing about Japanese uh, etiquette, unless I've had lots of opportunities to learn about it through previous interactions with Japanese visitors, let's say. But even in this case, though I might not be blameworthy, I think it could be argued that it would be, it would be better if I did know about Japanese etiquette. There is something admirable. Maybe in, maybe in some kind of non-moral sense about possession of any kind of uh, knowledge. And this is where the re regrettability comes in. So if we take the discussion in Aristotle's Ethics um, 9.8, chapter 8 of book 9, about... Um, well, I mean, that, that, that chapter is about whether the, whether the virtuous person should, should favour themselves, put themselves first. And Aristotle says, essentially, yes... Uh, but you've got to do it in the right way. There's a kind of bad way to do it, and that's if you've got the wrong conception of eudaimonia. If you think that it consists in money and power and so on, and you put yourself first, that's bad. If you think that putting yourself first involves choosing virtuous action, that's, that's good. There's no objection to that. Now, this has the unfortunate implication that if you find yourself um, in the front line... Uh, in a battle against the Persians. Uh, and it's, it's clear that you've really, you know, you've got to take the lead um, uh, charge at them. Uh, you've got to do that. That's the bad news. Right? But the good news is that if you do do that, uh, it won't be against your self-interest because it's the most noble, it's the most callon uh, thing you can do in the circumstances. So for Aristotle, you can never lose by choosing the most virtuous option. But it would make perfect sense for you as you're running forward to think, it's a bit regrettable that this battle is taking place. Right? <laughs> My life would have gone better if I'd never ended up in this position. But now I'm here, this is what I have to do. Right? It seems to me one could have the same thought in the, in the, in the Japanese visitor case. It would be it would be better if I did know about Japanese etiquette. And I would have been, to that extent, um, more admirable as a person. But given that I don't, it would be blameworthy of me not to rely on testimony uh, in this case. Now, Halvard's second version of the understanding argument I call the second best argument and that says relying on testimony is always worse that's closer to, the, to my Rossian reconstruction of the first argument and Howard says look it would just be irresponsible of you in the case of the Japanese visitor not to rely on testimony 
But the moral testimony pessimist is agreeing with that and saying, look, it, it's true. It would be irresponsible not to rely on testimony. It would just be better if you didn't uh, have to. Final version of this argument I called the unity argument. And according to this, a properly virtuous person would manifest a unified and coherent character, partly through grasp of, partly through consistent grasp of the reasons behind her first order moral judgments. Now, Halbert's got a couple of questions about this. One is, is it always bad to lack this aspect of character? I mean, what if I'm taking moral advice in a one-off situation, such as whether to attend the trial of an old friend? Well, this may be one of those cases that he mentioned when he was discussing friendship. Because it seems to me that the pessimist here might claim that this is just the kind of case in which it would be better to make up your own mind. It seems to me something defective about taking advice on an issue uh, uh, that central to your, your relationships with others. Now, Halvard then moves on to discuss whether accepting moral testimony involves a sacrifice of autonomy, as he did in the presentation a moment ago. And again, he considers different versions of the, of the argument. The first one he, I've called the surrender version, so the idea is there that you're, you're, by handing over control over your moral sensibility, you're surrendering, surrendering your status as an autonomous agent. And Halbert says, well, not really. I mean, you're just handing over control on this one occasion. And you could be handing over control autonomously. So it can't be a surrender of autonomy. Again, I think... The pessimistic point can be restated in pro tanto form. So we do have here a potential failure to exercise autonomy, even if the decision to put yourself in that position is itself taken autonomously. So there's a structural analogy with Mill's case of the person who sells themselves into slavery. I mean, the more autonomous person is the person who doesn't do that. second version of this argument I've called the imperative argument uh, and that begins from the idea that moral judgments can be can be sometimes construed as commands and so acting purely on the basis of them as issued by others for example state representatives might constitute a, an objectionable um, form of heteronomy well again the, the pessimist has to finesse their point. What they're going to say is it's a diminution of your autonomy to hand over your moral sensibility to other agents who lack authority. And then questions are going to arise about who has the authority in particular cases and who lacks it. And that will often depend on the details of the case. So if we take uh, one of the very nice examples in Howard's paper the, the claim that bluff should be considered acceptable in certain forms of international business 
So the idea is it's okay to take that on, uh, on trust from somebody else. It seems to me it depends on, on who you are. If you're a pretty uninformed early teenager, right, and, and you're looking for some you know, insight into business ethics, it seems absolutely fine to take that on trust. You might want to think about it later, but for the moment, that's fine. If you're grown up, it doesn't seem to me so clear that on that particular issue, you shouldn't really be able to come to a view um, yourself. I mean, you might listen to what other people say. You might take advice to some extent, but actually, you really ought to be making up your own mind on that question. Um, Halbert's paper ends with three, uh, three um, issues. One is he's a bit worried about the vagueness of his account of moral testimony. Um, I think it's fine. So <laughs> uh, he, he then considers the claim that accepting testimony is a bit like lying, and so always to be avoided. Okay, but again, we can we can rephrase that in protanto language. It's always to be avoided when possible, but sometimes the balance of reasons makes it impossible or unreasonable. And I think the pessimist could insist that relying on moral testimony is like, is like lying. It's always morally regrettable to some extent. Uh, his final point is about the relation of the epistemic and the moral aspects of moral testimony or relying on moral testimony. So Halbert suggests that we might, by being untrustworthy ourselves, make moral testimony pessimism true. Now, moral testimony pessimism is, is a normative view, so it seems to me it's not really contingent in that way. It's claiming that in all possible worlds, relying on testimony is worse than making up your own mind. Now, somebody who denies that, right, the person who denies pessimism, could still be pessimistic about the value of, of testimony in a world in which many people are untrustworthy. So you're not actually making the view true. You're just making it true that it's reasonable to be pessimistic in a particular world. Um, so let me end just briefly presenting the case for moral testimony um, pessimism, which I think would best be expressed in the form of a kind of Aristotelian version of the frenetic argument, according to which phrenesis itself uh, involves moral understanding, and if it's, it's of intellectual value, and it's of moral value as a virtue. So the phronimos will sometimes rely blamelessly on the judgments of others, but those judgments can't concern the fundamental principles of ethics, which, of which he must have autonomous uh, understanding. And I think there's a kind of interesting link here between um, the intellectual and the moral virtues in, in Aristotle, which perhaps is merely implicit, because relying on testimony is 
an action. And because it's an action, and it's, it's, it's not, as it were, an evaluative uh, description, right? If I say I relied on testimony, you can't tell whether that was a good or bad thing, a kind of neutral description of what I'm doing. Sometimes it's just fine to rely on testimony. Sometimes it isn't. Because you can do that, you can create um, a virtue by using Aristotle's um, doctrine of the mean. So you get a triad. So the virtuous person, the phronimos, is going to be the person who relies on testimony in the right way, in the right circumstances, for the right reasons, and so on. And then there are going to be two, two vices. Right? There, there's going to be the, the person with the extreme vice who relies on testimony when they shouldn't, in the wrong circumstances. And then there's going to be the, the morally arrogant person who says, oh, you know, I know, I, I know enough about the Japanese. You know, I know what they want. Who doesn't rely on testimony when, uh, when, they, when they should. And I think reflecting further upon that may fill in some of the gaps in Aristotle's account of the development of phrenesis, which, which, which many people think are there um, in, in um, book six of the, of the Ethics. I mean, you can go back to book two and tell a bit of a story about how uh, phrenesis would, or could develop. So essentially... What I'm suggesting is that moral testimony pessimism is really an implication of optimism about practical wisdom. The view that full-blooded virtue, at the very least, requires knowledge, even if it's not to be identified with it. Thanks.